John chapter 16, we're going to read from verses 16 through to 22. Jesus went on to say, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. At this, some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying in a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a little while you'll see me? And because I am going to the Father. They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he's saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this. So he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you'll see me no more, and then after a while you'll see me? Very truly I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has yet come. But when a baby is born... She forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you. Now is your time of grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everybody. Good to see you all. And I can see you just nicely mood lit. Uh, if you could keep uh, John 16 in front of you, we'll actually be moving through um, all of this passage through to verse 33, and um, I'm going to ask that we might pray as we seek to understand God's word, having just had it read for us. So let's um, let's bow before the Lord. Heavenly Father, um, Lord, would you take this part of your story uh, that John records, a story that recounts events just immediately before the execution of your son. As those that were gathered in that room heard those words, they were a word of comfort. I pray, Lord, that they'd be a word of comfort to us tonight. So as we come with many things on our minds, we'd ask that your word would do the thing that you've purposed for it to do, that your spirit would be at work, helping us to understand it, that we might be encouraged by it, trained by it, redirected if necessary. And we pray, Lord, that we would understand and know you better and be transformed. Pray, Lord, that I might speak your word faithfully. And so we come now and ask that you would bring glory to yourself. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. If I were to ask you, just in your mind, to answer the question, where don't you have peace in your life at the moment? Where don't you have peace And then, if I was to ask you, what do you think you would need to know or to have in order for peace to be restored? What would need to happen? What would you need to know? Where don't you have peace? What would you need in order for peace to be restored? Uh, This last week, I was reading an article, a fairly lengthy article, that was written about uh, what we know about Malaysian airline flight MH370. It's five years, more than five years now, since that airline went missing. Um, you know that story? Um, 38 minutes after takeoff, a flight from Kuala Lumpur that was heading to Beijing disappeared off the radar screens. There was some communication that picked up some hours later, but little if anything is actually known about what happened to that flight. 
Bits of debris has been found, um, but not much. 227 passengers, 12 crew. And what happened? If you think of a disrupted to peace, uh, that's going to be one of them, isn't it? The disappearance of a flight. You think of all of the families. You think of the extended grief of that kind of atrocity, that kind of an incident. It's bad enough just the disappearance or the destruction of a plane or whatever it may have been. And, and yet one of the things that magnifies, I think, that is the not knowing. That there's just so many unanswered questions. It's just so much that's unknown. And I want you to think about that idea, not about that flight, but just how so much of life, in fact, is made harder. In the troubles and the lack of peace, when there's a gap in knowledge, the not knowing that magnifies all of that, where we're caught in the middle and we're stuck in some level of silence and we want some answers and some clarities that might give us some answers, but it's not forthcoming. There's a not knowing. See, we would want to affirm that life can be tough enough. Tragedies hard to endure. They can be overwhelming. But you add onto that the burden of not knowing and it can be even more paralyzing. In John chapter 16, Jesus has been meeting with his disciples now for several chapters. It's the night before his execution. And as he meets with his disciples, he wants them to know about the future. He wants them to go into what is unknown to them with some information behind them. Um, Part of the information that he's already given them has been to tell them that he won't be with them. He's leaving them. In fact, he's going to be crucified. And they cannot follow on to where he is going. And so, though there might be a whole lot of uncertainty before them, he's filling them in at least on some information. And as we've been seeing, as we've been preaching through the Upper Room Discourse, which is what this is called, this section of John's Gospel, Jesus has taken time with his friends and lovingly taught them the kinds of things that they need to know. And at this point in chapter 16, he wants them to know what is going to happen and all that is about to happen in the immediate future, in the next few hours and days, is exactly as God has planned it. It will mean that they will have some knowing in the midst of their not knowing. And Jesus knows if they get that, if they were able to hold on to that, then they might have peace even in the midst of all of their pain and anguish and uncertainty. Think about the confusion and the uncertainty that you face in your life. And I want to suggest that this is also not just a message for those disciples that night, but a message for us bombarded by all the not knowing, knowing that the living God is active and that you can be in relationship with him and talk with him and that this living God is in fact delivering on his plans and his promises or to give you peace in the midst of whatever pain or lack of peace you're enduring. Now let's see if that's right. Is that what's going on in this passage We pick up uh, the story with Jesus in the middle of a conversation that he's having with his disciples in chapter 16. And we find that the disciples listening into that conversation are confused. If you were to summarise what's going on in their mind, it's, huh? That's really the summary of it all. Backwards and forwards, they're looking around going, you got any idea? You know what's going on? No idea. What does he mean? 
verses 17 to 18. What does he mean when he says, in a little while, you will see me no more? And then, after a little while, you will see me. And what's this bit about, because I go to the Father? And they kept asking, what does he mean by, in a little while? And, well, you don't understand what he's saying. It is confusing for them. It's confusing because as recently as just the first part of this chapter, Jesus has been saying, well, kind of almost two things that seem to cancel each other out. At the beginning of the chapter in verse 5, he says that he is going to the Father. Earlier, he's told them that he's going to the Father and they cannot follow him to where he's going, so they will not see him. So that's what's going to happen. He's also said that he's going to come back again. In chapter 14 and verse 3, he says that he will go and be with the Father and they won't be left as orphans. In fact, he's going to prepare a way for them. And just now, he's telling them that after a little while, they will see him again. And you listen to all of that and as you piece it together, it sounds like Jesus has been preparing them for a long time absence, but it sounds like he's coming back immediately. So which is it? They won't see him, they will see him, in a little while or in a longer while. And when he says it's because he's going to the Father, is that why they won't be able to see him? Because they can't follow, as he's already told them. Or is he going somewhere else first? Or what is he talking about? Huh? I'm not knowing, is the problem that the disciples have. And actually, as we read through the text, I don't think it's quite as confusing for us like it was for those first disciples that night. We actually know the sequence that's about to play out. We know the story of that Easter event. And for us, I think it's actually pretty obvious what Jesus is saying. In verse 16, he says, in a little while, I'm going to die. And I'm going to be placed into a tomb. My corpse will be behind a stone and two Roman guards will secure my body out of sight. You will not see me. In a little while, you'll see me no more. But, and here's a spoiler alert, so I hope I don't wreck the story for anyone. Jesus rises from the dead. The stone is rolled back come Sunday morning. And there he is revealed. In fact, he appears to his disciples over the period of another 40 days. In a little while, you won't see me. But after that, after a little while, you will see me. And we listen to that and we think, well, that's not confusing at all. We can understand how Jesus can say that they won't see him and that they will see him. And all of that happens before he returns to the Father. But that night, as they gather in the upper room and listen to Jesus, they've heard him now for something like three chapters and he's been telling them that he is about to die and after that return to the Father, where he'll send out his spirit who will return to them and who will be with them always. And a major component of what Jesus has been teaching his disciples has been that they would be prepared then for his long-term absence. He's going away, but you're not an orphan. I will send you the counsellor. Saw this last week in verse 7 of chapter 16. Jesus says, but very truly I tell you, it's for your good that I'm going away. Because unless I go away, the counsellor will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And so there you are, you're in the upper room and you've been listening. Maybe you've been taking notes because it is hard to follow, but you've managed to keep up and you're piecing it all together and you've got the equation worked out in your mind. Jesus is going away, he's going to be crucified. 
And then he's going to rise again and he's going to the Father to prepare a place for us. And we can't follow. But as he goes to the Father, he will send his Spirit. And now by his Spirit, he actually returns to us and is present with us always. But now, Jesus clues them in on the fact that there's another step in that progression. Because up until this point, the disciples don't know about something. They're hearing it for the first time right now. There's a unique piece of information that Jesus has just disclosed to them right now. And that is that Jesus will be returning to them after a little while in a resurrected body and they will see him before he goes to the Father in the flesh. They'll watch him eat. They'll walk with him. They'll spend time with him. And knowing that might confuse them on first hearing, but... Jesus is pointing out to them that it is his bodily resurrection and his appearing with them that takes them from the grief of their loss to joy. But also in the midst of their grief and uncertainty, they are being told beforehand and that is to give them peace in the midst of the pain. Because they know that God is working out his plan and keeping his promises. Or at least they are meant to. They've got the information. See, look at what Jesus does in the text. In verses 17 and 18, the disciples, they're all confused. Jesus asks them about what they're confused about and then fills them in in verse 19. And he goes on to tell them that there are two events that they are about to witness. Verse 20, very truly... I tell you, you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. The event that you're about to witness, you're about to see something that will make you weep. The world will be rejoicing, but you will be weeping. And what you're about to witness is my death on the cross. My time here on earth has reached its conclusion. The thing that I've been sent to do, it's reaching its high point and I'm about to do it. And after I have been lifted up and crucified, I will return to the Father. And remember, Jesus has made it clear that the only way for him to return to the Father is via the cross. Where he's going to endure in our place the death that sin deserves. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to the Father, but it's necessary that I go to the cross In view of God's plan to save the world that he so loves, there is going to be pain and suffering. I will die in your place. And you will see that take place, the disciples, and you will weep and mourn while the world rejoices as they kill God. But notice that there is pain and suffering before there is new life and joy. And for the disciples, it's going to reflect a similar pattern. Friday will come, it's there tomorrow, and he dies, and they weep, and they mourn. In fact, they scatter as well. They're terrified. They'll cry out in anguish. And then you think about the moments that tick on through the rest of that day into the night, and then through all of Saturday, every dejected minute, every tear that's spilling, This protracted time of not knowing. You just watched your master be slaughtered on a cross and pushed into a tomb. And in the midst of the tragedy, Jesus says, you will mourn. The world will rejoice, but not you. Verse 20, you will grieve. 
But know that on the other side of that necessary pain, you will witness something else. Something that's actually going to expunge, push back your grief. See, the second thing that Jesus tells them is that they will in fact have their grief turned to joy. Why? Because they will see him resurrected. They'll experience him again bodily in their presence. And Jesus says that changes everything. And he goes on then to illustrate the experience that they're about to go through. Now, look at that, because I actually think you want to applaud Jesus at this point. It is a gutsy bloke who tries to equate something with the pain and the experience of childbirth. But that's what Jesus does here. Uh, So I I learned not to do it a long time ago. Not smart. But I I was tempted this week. Jai Ramage and Damo Whitington, if you didn't know, both have had their appendix uh, removed in recent days. Um, I don't know discount for two, I don't know why, but but that's what happened. But um, I was talking to them on the phone and I decided I didn't think it was a good idea to tell them that when I had my appendix removed some 20 odd years ago, the surgeon told me, this is not a lie, told me that a ruptured appendix was more painful than childbirth. Right, now I've kept that little fact to myself uh, for over the years because I'm smart enough to know that when Heidi was ever in labour and she said, you've got no idea the pain, I'd say, well, you know, actually, honey, <laughs> you know what? You now know a bit of what it's like to have an appendectomy, you know, but didn't do it smart enough. And the truth that it's like that, I suspect, is that no one goes back and has, you know, several appendectomies. My wife had four kids, right? And no one takes their little appendix and kind of wraps it up and coddles it and shows it around, takes photos. and It's, it's painful. You want to forget it straight away. Uh, I, I don't happen to think that a, a burst appendix is more painful than childbirth. But, but, but look what Jesus does. He reaches for the best illustration to make his message clear that there is an experience, and we know it, where agony gives way to joy. Look at verse 21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because her joy that a child is born into the world. On the eve of the first Good Friday, before the disciples see him slaughtered, Jesus' disciples need to know something, and that is that their grief that they will endure is necessary, but it's only temporary. And on the other side of it, it gives way to great joy. Look at verse 22. So it is with you. Now is your time for grief. But I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. See, Jesus is making it clear that after his death, he's not going straight back to the Father. He'll rise from the dead and they will see him. They'll have evidence and proof in their midst, bodily present with them, is their master. The resurrected Jesus And we need to realise, like the disciples that night needed to realise, that the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. In fact, it reverses everything. Grief gives way to joy, agony to elation. Because God is about to do something new. And here's this incredible new beginning. Like a child arriving fresh into the world. Oh, there'll be anguish while Jesus is gone. But it is replaced by a joy that is incomparable to their grief. 
And of course, that's exactly what you see happen. Sunday comes, and the tomb is empty, and Jesus meets with them. And in John 20, verse 20, the disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. And wouldn't you be, if God, in your midst, was crucified, and then you see him now alive again, and all the things that he said, you say it's proof positive that it's true. And I wonder, do we see the significance of this? And that is that since that day, we're no longer in the day of grief and of weeping because the day of joy has come. This is not a day of death or a time of Jesus' absence. We're in the day of Jesus present with us, in the day of resurrection. How does knowing this help? Well, you can see how it helps his first disciples, can't you? Within three days, their lives are transformed. With the sending of his spirit, their whole attitude, outlook, proclamation, everything is changed. Jesus and the joy of knowing him alive, reigning and ruling takes over their lives. But for us, knowing this, does it help? Give you peace? Is this an instruction for us to be joyful always because we live this side of the resurrection? And how real is that? I mean, aren't there reasons to grieve? When I catalogue the suffering that I've experienced or that I've seen around me or look at in the world, the tragedies and the injustices and the burdens and the heartaches, don't they still add up to a whole mountain of sorrow? And and aren't I still operating in some shadow land of unknowing where I don't know all things so much of the time and I can't make sense of much of today, let alone an unknown future? See, let's be very clear on this. Because Jesus isn't promoting a kind of just smile at life. Just be ignorant of all of that and just be joyous, promising some kind of trouble-free life. In fact, you only have to look on to verse 33 and hear Jesus clearly on this point where he says, in this world, you will have trouble. You will. You'll have trouble. And hasn't that been your experience? And don't you anticipate it will be into the future? In this world, you will have trouble. But see, what Jesus is promising is actually that his followers can have a joy in the midst of their troubles. Because they are not unknowing of the one who holds the future in his hands. And they're not, and they, sorry, and they are knowing of his ongoing presence with them always. They are not left alone. In fact, in verses 23 to 33, which we didn't read, Jesus actually goes on to give two reasons why his ongoing presence motivates joy in this troubling life. And both of them have to do with this idea that things get asked for and God's a God who's giving answers. It's hard to pick up in our translations, but there's two different words that Jesus uses here to talk about asking. 
One is about asking about, and the other one is about asking for. Asking about is all to do with the times that you need information. You don't know what's going on, and then you ask about something, and hopefully you get the answers to those things. Because ignorance isn't bliss. It feels awkward and awful. And, and the joy is actually to move from not knowing by asking about something that you might know it. And Jesus says, there's an asking about that comes because of my presence, of, of my going to the Father and his presence with you that changes everything and ought to give you a joy. And then there's this other do- idea of asking for something. And, and you ask, for something, when you, when you need something. And now, because of Jesus' resurrection, the disciples will know both the joy of understanding and the joy of answered prayer, asking for and asking about. Let's have a, just a brief think about both of these ideas. This asking about, this joy of understanding. Think about it, that there are these disciples as they gather with all of their questions And Jesus says from his resurrection onwards, he is the one who comes to them and reveals the Father to them directly. They won't have to grapple about in the dark. They can ask about and they will know the Father because the Father knows them and actually now God actually takes up residence within them. They, They know the Father. Verse 25, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but I will tell you plainly about my Father. And as we saw last week, that that privilege is not just the experience of the first disciples, because the ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus sends out his Spirit to us, is to continue the work of making the Father known to this world and to those in whom the Spirit dwells. Chapter 16, verses 12 and 15, unpack that idea. That he is God that's now revealing himself in us. We know him and he knows us. We know God actually as Father. And knowing that should bring clarity and perspective to your life. And that ought to bring joy. In the sense that it means living with an understanding that God is at work. Even in the troubles of this life, he's still at work and he's your father and he loves you and he's good and his character. It's unchanging in whatever circumstance you've now found yourself in. And he's full of love and justice. He's like that. And his forgiveness and his capacity to set you free still remains. And his wisdom is ready to be revealed and, and surely your loving heavenly father is with you always, even to the end of the age. Doesn't that give you a sense of joy? He's not far off and distant. Now God is with you. So be joyful about that in this troubled life. Ask about God and you know that he dwells within you. You've got that question answered and the answer never changes. The other thing that Jesus goes on to say is not only is your asking about your understanding fulfilled, Know also that your asking for comes with the joy of answered prayer. That the death and the resurrection of Jesus opens up for us direct access to the Father. Listen to how he puts it. Verse 23 and 24. In that day, you will no longer ask me anything. 
Very truly, I tell you, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask, and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. The disciples are told that they will know that prayer, asking for, is effective. In fact, when you look at it, it blows your mind how effective it is, isn't it? It's incredible. It says, ask whatever you ask. Do it in Jesus' name and the Father will give. And your joy, my joy will be complete. Wouldn't yours be? You could ask whatever you want. That is joyous. I can see how this works itself out. And if I was to think like that, I think that is seriously awesome. It would also be seriously inconsistent with what Jesus is teaching here. When Jesus says you are to pray... In my name, he's not saying, just make sure when you ask the Father, you whack the in my name bit on the end, otherwise it doesn't work. It's like not having the spark plug in. Just put the in my name and you'll get it. God, I would like, in Jesus' name, amen. And just wait and it'll happen. But in my name isn't some magical formula. In fact, A helpful way to see Jesus' meaning in this passage is to cast your mind back to what Jesus says in chapter 15 about prayer. That's the passage about the vine and the branches where Jesus talks about prayer and he talks about it in the same kind of language. He says in chapter 15 verse 7, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. It's the same massive expansive promise But notice that it leads out with, if you remain in me and my word remains in you. And what Jesus is saying is the control center of the prayer is not us remaining in our desires with our wills operating and motivating us, but with us abiding or remaining in Christ and in his word. And that that new nature and his breathed out word forming the content of our requests to God, Jesus is saying that asking like that will know the joy of answered prayer. Ask in his name, remaining in him and his word remaining in you, and God answers those prayers. As I'm thinking out and acting out God's thoughts, God hears and answers those prayers. See, it might be helpful to imagine yourself like an ambassador in this regard. That if you're in Christ, you're no longer here on earth representing yourself and just your joy and your needs, your best interests. You're in Christ and Christ dwells in you and you represent him in his absence on his behalf. And so ask and know the joy of answered prayer in his name. Of course, I've been asking myself, a whole bunch of questions that are connected to this. And it's to wonder how often I'm failing to pray in Jesus' name with confidence. I'm well accustomed to asking in my name, abiding in my thinking with my priorities. But what would it mean as I pray to know Christ in me, abiding in his word and asking from that foundation, Lord, what's your will? 
And how often when my prayers aren't answered, do I think that a possible reason is that I'm not praying in Jesus' name? But rather, I think that the problem isn't with my heart or with my prayer, but with God and his capacity or goodness. But Jesus is saying, if you remain and my word in you, then ask. But how often am I just failing to pray? Just failing to ask for? See, Jesus is saying to his disciples, with me gone and to the Father in his presence, do you not know the incredible privilege that you have of being able to come directly to the Father and talk with him? But you don't. Or you won't. Or you go somewhere else first, year after year. See, I have this very well-established self-talk. I've got this great inner monologue that can ramble on for hours in a powerless loop. But Jesus is saying, don't you know the access that you've got? So I'm to be asking in prayer, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And Lord, your will be done in me and, and in this situation and this thing that's robbed me of my peace. Have that, your will and your word to bear in that place. Because it is your will and your kingdom, not mine. See, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells us about the joy of access to the Father in prayer. Together with the joy of knowing a God who is our heavenly Father, who loves us like that. And this has all come about because of what he secured, because he went to the cross and there was weeping for a time, but then it gave birth to great joy. And these are the joys that every Christian is meant to experience. The joys that, that are meant to outweigh the griefs that the disciples are about to experience when Jesus leaves them. And the griefs and the disappointments that we experienced. That even in the midst of those, it's a reminder that God is still with us. And he's still listening to us and we have unparalleled access to him. See, Jesus is sure that his leaving is better than having him stay with them. See, we might think that it would be better to have Jesus with us, but that's not what Jesus thinks. He says, it's better that I go to the Father and it's better because it's only by him going to the cross that we can know God as Father. And it's better because it's only by him going to the Father that we can have direct access to God in prayer. It's better. See, sit with that for a moment tonight. That you can relate to God now like an adopted child. That he's your father. And you can enter his presence in prayer and talk with him. That incredible privilege ought to give you joy. It should mean that grief subsides. See, Jesus expects his disciples to see their grief give way to joy. But it is important that we get the right perspective on this because we live in an in-between time. It's, it's not the day of grief and mourning. That day ended at the resurrection. This is a day of joy. But it's not a joy that doesn't still know struggles and disappointments and trouble. But in the midst of the trials... Because we know the one who is the Father and who is in control and we can come to him who answers prayers, then there ought be joy. Our ultimate joy is to come. It's not yet, but now. 
it will include even a foreshadowing of that joy in the difficulties of life, the things that you now endure and need to overcome. See, look again at verse 33. Jesus tells his disciples, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. Why? I have overcome the world. We're still living in this world. And that will mean facing trials, but, but something has changed. Because of Jesus and his going and his resurrection, we don't have to face those struggles, any of them, alone. That's what Jesus actually points out to his disciples. If you look back to verse 32, time is coming, in fact has now come, when you will be scattered each to your own home, you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And actually Jesus wants us to know that it's the same for us as it was for him. That sure, he's on the cross and the disciples all scatter and it looks like he's all alone. But he says, it is not so. The Father is always with me. And that's true for us too. That Jesus, now the one who's returned to the Father, has poured out his spirit. And on this side of the resurrection, we see the continuity of Jesus' presence with us always. You are never alone. Not alone in any of your trials because Christ has come to us and is with us. Oh, he will come again, but he is with us now and not alone. And so you look again at what Jesus says at the beginning of verse 33. I've told you these things. Why? So that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble. But take heart. I've overcome the world. And do you see the distinction? In this world, you will have trouble. But in me, peace. It's overwhelming. I don't know what tomorrow holds. I've overcome the world. You may not know what tomorrow holds, but you know the one who holds tomorrow. And through him, we know the Father. And we know the ultimate future is fully secure. Overcoming is about singing that old song that says, with Christ in my vessel, I can smile at the storm. Oh, there's a storm, but with Christ in me, I can smile. We're going to move into a time where we're going to sing and pray. And the first song that we're going to sing is a lament. It's a hard song to sing. It's a song that owns the trouble that we experience in this world. I breathe the dust of misery and my soul has had its fill. Where is your voice in this darkness? Lord, are you faithful to me? Where is your love that you promised? Lament. In this world, you will have trouble. But take heart. He has overcome the world. And so the chorus ends. And our conviction ought to stand on these words. You are the God who saves.